Estonian Nakoda First Nations and the Métis Nation in Region 3. David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. What have we done to democracy? What have we turned it into? What happens once democracy has been used up, when it has been hollowed out and emptied with meaning? What happens when each of its institutions has metastasized into something dangerous? Is it possible to reverse this process? Can something that has mutated go back to being what it used to be? That's Arundhati Roy, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Arundhati Roy on what have we done to democracy. India is often called the world's largest democracy. Narendra Modi is the prime minister. He was elected in 2014 and again in 2019. Prior to becoming prime minister, he was chief minister of the state of Gujarat, where in 2002, a massacre of Muslims took place. Modi denied any involvement but the State Department was not convinced and banned him from traveling to the United States. He's a member of the Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, or the RSS. Its founding ideologues, Arundhati Roy says, were greatly influenced by European fascism. They openly praised Hitler and Mussolini. The RSS expounds the doctrine of Hindutva, Hindu nationalism, and is the parent organization of India's ruling party, the Bharatiya Janta Party, the BJP. And the BJP under Modi has openly embraced Hindutva and has demonized Muslims and immigrants. His army continues the decades-long occupation of Kashmir. Our guest today is Arundhati Roy, a world-renowned writer and global justice activist. The New York Times calls her India's most impassioned critic of globalization and American influence. She's the recipient of the Sydney Peace Prize and the Cultural Freedom Award from the Lannan Foundation. She's the author of many books, including Azadi. She spoke from New Delhi in early September. She was interviewed by Nick Estes, Native American author, activist, and scholar who teaches at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. I wanted to begin with a question about the book's title, which is Azadi, which is a Kashmiri word for freedom. The first word that comes to mind when you think of Azadi is novel, because as you write in in the introduction, a novel gives a writer the freedom to be as complicated as she wants to move through worlds, languages, and time, through societies, communities, and politics. So in many ways, you read the recent and long history of of India through Kashmir. Can you explain your your choice of using this word and how it shapes this collection of essays? Azadi is a word which is perhaps uh, Persian in origin, 
and then Persian came and mingled with uh, Hindi and Hindustani and became an Urdu word. More recently, it traveled, I think, from the Iranian Revolution. Uh, it it was used by feminists. Hum kya chahte azadi? What do we want? Freedom. And then now, and meaning for for several decades, has been the haunting cry of Kashmiris who have been fighting the Indian military occupation, who have been killed in their thousands for it. But oddly enough, there's a deathly silence in India about the Kashmiri struggle. There is, there's a silence from the left. There's a silence from the liberals. Of course, uh, there's a lot of noise from the right, which covers uh, the real truth of the story. But also what is very dangerous in this part of the subcontinent is that the large Muslim population in India, which is, uh, I think, 15% or 13%, which is, I mean, millions, hundreds of millions of people, are a kind of hostage to the rivalry with Pakistan, to the Kashmiri independence movement. And the Indian Muslims have a completely different space that they occupy. They don't have the option of even thinking about freedom. They have to think about how to live here with dignity. And recently, this government, the Modi government, the right-wing Hindu nationalist government, came up with a new citizenship law, which was piggybacking on an old thing called the National Register of Citizens, which was sort of reactivated in the state of Assam, which borders Bangladesh. And some 20 million people were off that register, people who had been born and who had lived in India for generations. And on top of that, the government passed another law called the Citizenship Amendment Act, which was like very blatantly anti-Muslim. And so suddenly there was this really odd juxtaposition that happened last year where Kashmir, which had a special status in the Indian constitution, on the 5th of August, it was stripped of its status. It was sort of integrated into India in, in the most brutal manner possible. There's an internet siege. There's It's the most densely uh, militarized zone in the world. Uh, their phones were put off. And almost for the whole of this past year, Kashmir has been under curfew and silenced, lockdown, COVID, all of it. But while Kashmir was silenced, Massive protests came out on the streets of India by this new Muslim, anti-Muslim citizenship law. And their chant was also Azadi. So while the Kashmiri Azadi chant was silenced, here there was the swell of a demand for a different kind of Azadi. Obviously not independence as in secession or an independent state, but a cry for dignity, for human rights, for being treated as equal citizens, that too was brutally crushed. The rest of India sort of became, I mean, not not with the kind of cruelty that Kashmiris have witnessed, but it began to seem like there was curfew, there were internet cuts, uh, people were brutalized, killed. And so this series of essays really began to ask, what is the connection between the Kashmiri call for Azadi and the new cry on the Indian streets, is it a chasm? Is it a bridge? The essays are uh, written from the point of view of a literary imagination, uh, which, which then 
basically interrogates the idea of azadi in its myriad forms. The literary imagination that you're talking about, I think you make a point in one of the essays, which is this, a talk that you gave about how your writer friends were approaching you and talking about, well, when are you going to get back to writing? When are you going to get back to the, the quote unquote real work of a fiction writer? And you make a very powerful point, not just in this book, but I think throughout your career, that what you are doing is a form of uh, of, of literature, um, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. And so can you talk a little bit about your role as a writer and how you see it playing out, not just in the realm of political analysis and commenting on current events, but also imagining new worlds, whether it's through The God of Small Things or The Ministry, your most recent novel? When I wrote The God of Small Things, um obviously i used to work in you know i'm an architect and then i worked in cinema and this was my first book who could anticipate that kind of attention for a first book it won the booker prize and it sold millions of copies and i found myself very suspicious of of this kind of uh, embrace by an establishment that i've always been very suspicious of i felt like my proteins were being sort of <laughs> melted down and <laughs> I was I was just being turned into some fame is also very domesticating you know everyone wants you to write the same book again and that was just around the time that India had sort of shifted from being this non-aligned power a poor country but a poor country with some spine with some dignity uh, with a great socialist underpinning I mean, Kerala, where I grew up, was the first democratically elected communist government in the world, if that's not an oxymoron, but whatever. So I grew up with the strikes and the big protests and the red flags and the revolution was coming. And then suddenly, by the 90s, everything changed and the markets were opened. Of course, the Soviet Union had collapsed and India aligned itself with the free market, with the US, with Israel. Suddenly, the literary imagination, the cinematic imagination, the poetic imagination, the public language, everything changed. And in 97, I was like on the cover of every magazine. In 1998, uh, the right-wing government came in and did this series of nuclear tests. And I was sort of being marketed as this sort of the new India, the new India taking its place in the high table and I knew that if I didn't have the option of keeping quiet, because if I kept quiet, that meant I agreed with all that. So I wrote the first political essay, which was called The End of Imagination. Within like hours, I was kicked off the pedestal <laughs> of this great, great sort of literary sensation. And there was this incredible disappointment in me by people around me that how could you have done this? I literally, in that essay, I said... I was talking about the fact that nuclear weapons uh, are, it's not just whether they are used or not, that is the problem, but how they colonize your imagination, how they nationalize your imagination, mm -hmm. and how they change the, the public language. And I said, if it's anti-Hindu and anti-Indian to have this imagination implanted in my brain, then I secede. I declare myself a mobile Republican. This was like in this orgy of nationalism, 
the fairy princess had just come out and shat on everyone, you know, more or less. <laughs> I was just like, out. But there was another world which suddenly kind of opened up to me and I traveled, I, I, and I began to write these essays and uh, people were unsure what, is this? Is it academic? Is it a journalist? Is it a pamphleteer? You know, they were somewhere between genres because uh, there was certainly a, you know, it, it, it was an intervention. It was urgent. It was furious. It wasn't, and it was more like uh, I, I saw that that these movements, like the the big anti dam movement, the displacement of these nations of people, of ancient people, there needed to be a story, like a story was like putting a weapon in the hands of the movement. So I was not writing what people call truth to power. I was not writing some on the one hand this and on the other hand that and on the third hand this. I was saying this is our fight and I am the writer on the side of the line. And People, I think things might have changed a little very recently, but there's this kind of fear of a writer being political, as if the god of small things wasn't political. <laughs> the people in Kerala understood it was political and dealing with the subject that was absolutely taboo, which is to talk about caste and the ways in which the left has not been able to deal with it. But people managed to change that into, oh, it's so beautiful, it's about children, the language. People kind of work hard to to soften the edges sometimes of writing, which makes them uneasy. But for me, when I started writing the political essays, you know, they would get translated immediately into mm. Indian languages, made into pamphlets, distributed in forests, in and they understood it as literature, people on the front line. That's what I said in one of the essays, that for me, there's something about literature that is constructed between readers and writers, mm. not between critics and literature festivals and reviewers, but between readers and writers, which is urgent and which is a kind of shelter. There are some moments in my life, to me, are, are, are so more than any royalties, more than any awards. I remember being in a village in Bengal very late at night, walking through the paddy fields, and there was a huge standoff because the government, which happened to be a left government actually, was trying to take over the land, give it to a huge chemical plant. And there was firing. I could hear the firing happening in the distance. and. Mm. I, I was just walking along. This man just appeared in the shadows and he said, you know, I just want to thank you for understanding what we're doing. The other side thinks we have weapons. We don't have weapons. We just pretend. We just use sticks and silhouette and pretend we have weapons. We don't have anything. But we're fighting and very few People at that point, everyone on in the TV studios will start turning Gandhian and denouncing violence uh, when it's easy for them, expecting everyone to just lie down and die while the land is taken. Which is why I was so happy to read uh, your piece in the Jacobin. You know, I just thought 
goodness, how much you would have had to talk about if you had come here and walked with the comrades in the forests of central India. One thing that I've really been inspired by your writing specifically is that you don't confine yourself to one thing. And I think there's a lot of expectation for people to be kind of characterized as, as a certain kind of writer. You're a fiction writer, you're a poet. We confront that, especially within literary nationalism, especially people who are not part of kind of the European tradition, but nonetheless have inherited the baggage of that, whether it's through colonialism or imperialism. And one of the ways that I really appreciated that you you push back on that is this idea of translation, the multiple languages that one has to know and to understand. And I'm not just talking about languages that people speak because capitalism yeah. itself is a language. It, tr it transforms relations into profit. It transforms things into money. And I've been thinking about this because I'm writing this piece and I haven't like crystallized what I actually, how I understand it. But I felt like you were really kind of challenging. In some ways, you were being more cosmopolitan than the, than the cosmopolitan people, because you're looking at a place that is, you know, as you say, is simultaneously captured in different centuries and but also it's overlapped in in nations and in different kinds of people that can't be just encompassed in one kind of single literary tradition in one of the essays i say that if a novel shouldn't have an enemy but if the <laughs> ministry of utmost happiness has an enemy then it's the idea of one nation one mm -hmm. language one religion which is what uh, the modi government and the uh, fascists around him uh, are trying to push for. But uh, in India, there are something like seven, more than 700 languages spoken. 22 of them are, you know, official languages. And within each language, uh, there is such a history of colonizing, being colonized. There's so many, um, you know, there's so many cycles of respect and disrespect, the, 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 the words that will be used to describe this caste or that gender. And so, and, the, and, and, and like the first essay in the book, of course, it's, it, it, the caption is a line from Neruda, which says, in what language does rain fall over tormented cities? It's really talking about the ministry of utmost happiness. The characters are swimming in this ocean of languages. And you see, for example, the most shattering memory of people in modern day India is the memory of the massacres that took place in 1947 when India was partitioned and uh, Pakistan and India became two separate countries. Although there were many nations, the violence was of assimilation as much as it was of partition. But one of the things you see is that before the partition happened, language was partitioned. The language that we uh, used to call Hindustani was then sort of partitioned into Urdu, which was supposedly spoken by Muslims and Hindi by Hindus. And the violence of that continues to this day. I mean, to this day, you'll have fascist mobs go and raise to the ground some poet who wrote 300 years ago, some poet of love. So language has been at the heart of much of the violence in this continent 
that is masquerading as a nation. And even as I was saying earlier, when they did the nuclear test, you could see the public language changed. And now you have, when they start off on these national register of citizens, and you have people who live in these little islands in the most distant parts of the Brahmaputra, mighty Brahmaputra River, which keeps changing course, which has storms and tornadoes and consumes people's lives. But all of them have these little plastic bags with their documents, and they have internalized this bureaucracy's legacy papers and voter list and Similarly, the people in the Narmada Valley who are being displaced by the dam, they have a whole other language by which they are described in government files, PAP, that is project-affected person, reservoir-affected or canal-affected or whatever. And so, like, as a writer in this part of the world, to study love and violence and nationhood and religion... Language is a perfect entry point. Kind of elaborating on this idea of language and the partition of language, you talk about caste quite a bit in your work, and this is me being the ugly American. We have a racial hierarchy in this country. I wouldn't say that it's comparable, um, but there are similarities. But one thing that you talk about, it's not so much a caste system as you say, it's about Brahmanism and the re-Brahmanization of sections of Indian society, specifically through this organization, which you called one of the most powerful organizations in India right now, which is the RSS. Can you explain a little bit about that? Because I think reading some of your interviews, but then also people have messaged me uh, privately and asked, isn't Arundhati Roy Brahman herself? Isn't she from this upper caste? Mm. No, I'm not, actually. My mother is a Christian and my father, he belonged to an organization called the Brahmo Samaj, which is not Brahmin, but he also became a Christian. So, no, I'm not a Brahmin. And when the anti-caste movement has traditionally used the word Brahminism, it isn't about Brahmins. It's about the idea of this kind of caste hierarchy. It's not just Brahmins that practice Brahminism. I would say fundamentally the difference between race and caste, is only that caste has also given itself religious sanction. Christianity, Islam, Sikhism, all of them, at least in their texts, may say that all human beings are equal or brothers. But in the religious text, you have a stipulated hierarchy and each caste. So you have four divisions which are called Varnas, the Brahmins, the Vaishyas, the Shudras, the Kshatriyas, the Shudras, and then outside of it are the outcasts. But e- each of these has is divided into these tiny little jatis, which are castes, mm. and each jati has hereditary occupation. So the Brahmins are the priests, the Vaishyas are the traders, the Kshatriyas are the warriors, the Shudras are the menials and the Outcasts, of course, are the Dalits, the untouchable, the unseeable, and so on. The violence of thinking like that, it's unbelievable. If you look at Indian society, and you look at even, I would say, most Indian liberal intellectuals, even left-wing intellectuals, they will 
they would just elide this issue, which is actually the engine on which Indian society runs. So I've written a little book called The Doctor and the Saint, and it's about the conversations and debates between the most beloved leader of the Dalits, Dr. Ambedkar, and the most revered human being in the world, probably, Gandhi. And while I was researching this, I, who am like everyone else in the world, and particularly millions of Indians, indoctrinated in a completely falsification of what Gandhi was, what he stood for. And so I went back, and this little text is based not on speculation, not on interpretation, but only producing his own writing. At the time when Gandhi was in South Africa, all of us are told that he fought racism, he fought segregation. No. he His first battle in South Africa was for a third entrance to be opened to the Durban post office so that Indians and blacks would not have to share the same entrance. And he continuously in his writing made a difference between the upper caste Indians who he said are Aryans and the brothers of the Imperial Britain and the lower castes who are liars and basically unreformable. And then I traced that from his time in South Africa right up to the end of his life, how his views on race were informed by his childhood views on caste and then how caste came back, the attitude to workers, the attitude to women. And so... Like I said in this, in these essays, not elaborated upon like I have in The Doctor and the Same, but fascism, which we are experiencing now, adorns itself with fake news, but the fake news is built on a fake history. And liberals and left-wing intellectuals laugh at the, at the kind of corny fake history of the right, but they themselves have created a fake history which elides the role of caste in this country. The dishonesty is unbelievable. Mm. And I think recently in the wake of the George Floyd protests, which I would say that have erupted all over the world, it's probably one of the largest mass protests in world history. I, the only thing I can think of comparable to them in this recent moment, or I guess in, in recent history, is the mass demonstrations against the U.S. invasion of Iraq back in 2003. But in South Africa, I, I believe it was in South Africa, I could be wrong, they toppled a Gandhi statue. And in the United States... Yeah, uh, I think it was in Ghana. Although yeah, or Ghana. Although there are movements in South Africa saying Gandhi must fall. And yeah. the thing is, it's difficult to talk about this subject just in an interview because it's such a difficult subject. Mm -hmm. And... This In The Doctor and the Saint, I'm not saying that Gandhi had nothing to recommend himself. Of course, I'm not saying that. He was a brilliant politician, a cunning politician. He had a lot of things that I think were visionary. But we cannot build an understanding of who we are and what we are fighting for unless we are honest about his views on race his views on caste, and his views on women. And if you confront them, it's very hard to prefix the word Mahatma to his name for me. Mm. I want to change gears just a little bit and talk about an element in your writing 
that I think a lot of folks here in this part of the world can identify with is the rise of somebody like Modi and specifically his alignment with somebody like Trump. And you write this in the Nation piece that came out, which I read the day it came off the presses, um, how this kind of howdy modi spectacle that happened in Texas was happening alongside Google Trends that showed a surge in searches for like phrases like marry a Kashmiri girl or buy land in Kashmir, which was basically advertising um, territory uh, for Indian Indian settlers to come in and, and to colonize. Um, but then also while... Trump visited India in his, his most recent um, uh, meeting with Modi, um, there was a massacre happening. And yeah, in my city. In your city. And both of them, you know, operate like Modi seems to be a little bit more on the softer edge in his public appearance, while, you know, having a, an iron fist, obviously, in his crackdown against dissent, whereas Trump doesn't really care. But the thing that they share in common is an authoritarianism uh, as well as a make-believe fantasy and how they've dealt with not only dissent, but also uh, the, the current pandemic. Um, and I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate a little bit more on that and this this relationship, this loving relationship between these two leaders. I think that the difference between them is that Trump, of course, he does have his militias and he does have his media outlets but the institutions, uh, whether it's the army, whether it's the intelligence services, and whether it's the mainstream, not Fox News, but the mainstream sort of press, are showing a kind of resistance to him. But Modi is a person who has, from the time he was a very young adult, been a member of this organization called the RSS, which has modeled itself on Mussolini's black shirts, who, whose ideologues have openly praised Hitler. They have a massive infrastructure. They have militia of something like 600,000 people. They have hundreds of thousands of branches all over the country. They're, they are the state. The difference between the two is that one has the organization of fascism behind him, as well as the 400 24-7 news channels, as well as a great portion of uh, Bollywood, which is an incredible ambassador of uh, the Hindu right, with many honorable exceptions. So you have a situation here where it's a machine that's running, and the, all the institutions of democracy have been taken over. That's Arundhati Roy on What Have We Done to Democracy. This is Independent Alternative Radio. Stay tuned at the end to learn how you can get copies of this program, as well as our special book offer. Our website is alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Or you can call us at one 800 But both of them are great friends. And in fact, one of the reasons why Modi didn't react early to the COVID pandemic was because Trump was visiting and there was going to be this huge Namaste Trump meeting in Gujarat, which of course turned out to be 
a hub of massive coronavirus soon after that. But by the time Trump came from Gujarat to Delhi, you had the protesters who were on the streets very much like the Black Lives Matter protests. There were millions of people on the streets against the citizenship law, which was by then it had become about more than just that. There was poetry, there were students, universities were being just battered by police and so on. Then you had the massacre while Trump was here. The brutality was unbelievable and it was exhibitionist. And we saw the videos of the police with these battered Muslim men lying on the street, forcing them to sing the national anthem, mocking them about Aza, the mobs burning down mosques and so on. And now, of course, the whole narrative has been turned and Muslims are being blamed for killing Muslims and major human rights activists, students, all are being put into prison every day. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that the three geniuses of the early 21st century, Modi, Trump and Bolsonaro, are on the top of the charts of coronavirus. But now, today, the newspapers are telling us, not the TV channels, but the newspapers, that the Indian economy has shrunk 23.9%. Because Modi ordered a lockdown because fascists love spectacles. So his spectacle was, I'm going to call the most strict lockdown the world has ever known. And 1.38 billion people were given four hours notice. And then it was like a curfew. And that was like a chemical experiment because suddenly you had millions of working class people who had no homes, who had no money, who had no way of getting home to their villages, walking hundreds of kilometers home getting beaten by the police, getting sprayed with bleach and carrying the virus to the four corners of of the country. So right now we are sitting on an economy that's crashed, millions of people out of work. You almost feel like you're sitting on a crater of a volcano just cushioned with a thick layer of propaganda. That's it. But in India, we must remember that it isn't just because of the corona lockdown. It was already before corona, a 45-year high of unemployment. Modi, in 2016, come out one night and announced demonetization, where 80% of the currency was made no longer legal tender. So it was like some economists said, like he had just taken a gun and shot the heart of the engine of of a moving car. Then... Now the wheels have been taken away, you know, but the problem is that the poor do not exist in the imagination of the elite anymore. Since the 1990s, even if you look at Bollywood films, they used to be about fighting, about the poor, about workers, about unions, about villages. Now these films that are shown in malls, they don't have poverty in them. Literature has for the most part no more poor people in it. Poetry has lost the poor. So somehow there's no way of planning for them if they don't exist in your imagination, mm-hmm. which is why when, the, when they started walking, when the lockdown was called, it was, you know, they had been hidden away in the crevices of cities, unacknowledged, and suddenly they appeared. You are in a situation where... It's just been happening 
like I recently said to someone, it was like, it feels like a diabetic who who's just had a silent heart attack after silent heart attack after mm. silent heart attack. But the diabetes is just the propaganda that masks the illness. So suddenly you have a situation where the heart is failing. In your kind of closing essay in this book around the coronavirus, you write the pandemic is a portal. And you talk about how in the past, pandemics have forced societies to, to break with the past and imagine their world anew. And I think this can be said of, of many crises that societies face. A lot of the questions that we're getting, uh, even in the chat now, is like, how do we imagine a, a new world in this particular moment as We've seen, you know, the intersection of the rise of fascism with this coronavirus pandemic. And now we also have the question of, of global climate change that seems to have taken a backseat in this larger conversation. So when I said the pandemic is a portal and the last paragraphs are about what are we going to leave behind and what are we going to drag through the portal? Are we going to drag the carcasses of our dead rivers and smoky skies and the idea that our oceans are now filling up with PPE suits and masks. But I think more important is to understand the ways in which we are being controlled now, uh, apart from the fact that nothing suits the fascists more than having us all obviously siloed into our homes. In a country like India, that's not possible because people don't have the politics of the lockdown is completely the reverse here because mm -hmm. people don't have homes. A lockdown means social compression, not social distancing here because it's just impossible. So you, you are seeing data which shows that in poorer areas where people have been cramped up and people have just had to go about their work, there is a, a kind of greater resistance and a sort of herd immunity coming out. But I think the real danger that is that we face is that the idea that the classes that can be socially distanced will begin to view those that can't be as a biohazardous body. And there'll be a lot of attempt to try and see if the world can be made to work where the walking classes, the labor classes that had to walk thousands of kilometers home will be separated from the flying classes. And can we have production in which these two classes don't meet at all? Like, can we do away with the biohazardous body, the surplus people then? So the governments have shown, all these governments, meaning the governments that we are talking about, yours, ours, have shown every sign that they will seize upon this pandemic to increase controls, to increase surveillance, to increase the, the polarization of who's wealthy and who's not. But at some point, that is going to break apart, which I think we are, you're seeing in the United States. I haven't spent a lot of time there, but I think that people like even even this last two months in the run up to the election, people probably do understand that whatever happens in the elections, the elections are not going to be the way to a new world, although it's very important that Trump is voted out. But 
the the new people that come in will not come in with a new imagination and the polarization is so deadly that the chances of kind of violence on the streets is very very high similarly over here the chaos that we can expect as things break down maybe we we shouldn't be so scared of it is what i'm saying because nothing is going to transition so beautifully so easily without a kind of real battle nothing is going to change it's terrifying to think that way but i think that way now maybe many of us will perish in it but the polarization is so huge and so obvious and conversations are not even happening i had a final question and you don't have to answer it what is the future of indian democracy i wanted to read something somebody sent it to me it was like a little passage that i had written many years ago about democracy let me see if i can find it so this was from a essay i wrote called democracy's failing light and i said the question here really is what have we done to democracy what have we turned it into what happens once democracy has been used up when it has been hollowed out and emptied of meaning what happens when each of its institutions has metastasized into something dangerous what happens now that democracy and the free market have fused into a single predatory organism with a thin constricted imagination that revolves almost entirely around the idea of maximizing profit is it possible to reverse this process can something that has mutated go back to being what it used to be when i look at india the british left in 1947 by the 1960s there were revolutionary struggles here against feudalism against uh, calling for land to the tiller calling for the redistribution of wealth calling for revolution those movements were crushed mercilessly crushed then by the 1980s and 90s you had the large anti dam movements indigenous people fighting against displacement so from asking for the redistribution of wealth we were reduced to saying whatever little people have don't take that away those movements were crushed now you're reduced to begging for your citizenship because these citizenship laws are not for refugees they are not for people coming migrants they are for people who already live here like the nazi regime in in germany decided the nuremberg laws meant that citizens had to give the government a set of documents that the government would then decide are you a citizen or are you not so you have people now being reduced to begging for their citizenship the ground they stand on is not firm anymore and of course just praying that you won't go to jail tomorrow and uh, the laws that have been passed now so the question you ask what kind of a democracy is india i'd say that india is a one party democracy which is an oxymoron because the machinery including the election machinery is compromised so i do not see that the crisis we are in now the crater the volcano that is about to erupt is going to be soothed by any election because in the elections 
the media, the machinery, the money, the data, everything belongs to one party. That's why I say there will be an implosion. So we have some questions from viewers that I'd like to get to. Going back to Gandhi and and whether or not he ever changed his his racist kind of caste-based views. In The Doctor and the Saint, it traces Gandhi's writings right from the 1860-something to 1946. And while he's known to have campaigned against caste, he actually didn't change his views, I would say. He had a very missionary approach to it. He said he was against the idea of untouchability. But if you look at essays he wrote, like the ideal Bhangi, Bhangi is the municipal sweeper that used to clean, I mean, whose caste-based hereditary job was to clean. He writes about how this is such a holy job and how, what the ideal Bhangi should do and the Brahmin should always be a Brahmin, the Bhangi should always be a Bhangi, but everybody should be treated equally. So, But I would say that uh, rather than listen to me, read that book, because it's a complicated and a little scary for me to just talk uh, off the top of my head, because that book is, uh, it really quotes the writing and quotes the sources and it deals with the complications of that debate between Gandhi and Ambedkar. But let me say just that after having written it and researched it, researched against my own indoctrination, I was appalled. The other question, is there an organized front to fight the rise of fascism in India today? No. I mean, the political parties that uh, are in opposition to the BJP, the parliamentary parties, whether it's the Congress, whether it's the left, have, have more or less been decimated. Even the uh, anti-caste parties have been decimated. So the opposition in parliament exists in the form that the BJP wishes it to exist, doing work that only helps them. When the huge protest sprang up against the citizenship law, there were students. It was almost beginning to look like a revolution. But then coronavirus came and it it was smashed. People have been arrested. Like in Delhi, people were killed. And now hundreds of people are in jail. Students, professors, activists are being called in by the police, threatened, picked off one by one. There was no lockdown for the repression. You know, there was only a lockdown for people. And so uh, right now, uh, there isn't an organized front. Although an organized front may not be even possible in a country like India, mm. because an organization also can be broken quite easily. But I do believe that the situation is so dire now that something new will come up because people can't live like this. The next um, question has um, has to do with the reporting, I'm assuming, on the issues around uh, Kashmir and how they're reported on, uh, how journalists report on what's happening in Kashmir um, within India. And I guess the question is, how do, how do reporters and rioters work to combat the oversimplification that's coming out of the propaganda machine? 
The problem is not oversimplification. The problem is of a kind of nationalism that eulogizes the densest military occupation in the world and demonizes the people. So you have a situation where you have an internet siege in Kashmir since August 5th last year, on and off, but mostly on. And so at this point, I mean, imagine the world locked down for coronavirus. Everyone, we are all doing this. Kashmiris can't do this. For many months, they did, couldn't even make phone calls. So business collapse, students, hospitals, courts. So it's a kind of mass violation of human rights that I think is unprecedented in the world, this mm. digital siege. First, you push everyone into a digital era, and then you say, oh, Kashmiris don't need the internet. They only use it for pornography and terrorism. This is what senior government people say. So, and then you have this 24-7 propaganda. But you have a lot of people, including a lot of young Indians, I think, who have begun to feel the fact that to let this happen in your name eventually corrodes you. So it's not some altruistic thing you're doing on behalf of someone else, but only to honor yourself, to say, I'm sorry, but this is just not something that I find acceptable. But it's very, very frightening, very frightening, because people are picked up, arrested. For me, for example, people have said, okay, she should be tied to a tank and used as a human shield. Or if I do a book launch, then they'll come and smash up the stage or whatever. But these things have to be said. Mm -hmm. And it is ultimately, I said it long ago, and I'll say it again, that India needs Azadi from Kashmir almost more than Kashmir needs Azadi from India. Because mm -hmm. India, its ship is sinking, and a lot of it is because of this hate-fueled blind rage that it can't manage to see through. Sort of a final question is, what are the possibilities for solidarity, um, not just within India, but I think internationally with the Kashmiri cause? Because I believe, you know, it's something that I, you know, I could I'll admit in ignorance on. I, I see it peripherally um, in a lot of kind of uh, advocacy work and movement work. But I think in this moment in time, especially with, um, you know, the George Floyd protests and the current pandemic, that there are possibilities for solidarity. And what what does that what does that look like? Obviously, I think first, before any kind of solidarity can be embarked upon, one needs to understand uh, what's going on there. So I'd say that the solidarity could begin with reading and uh, there's an organization in Kashmir called the JKCCS, the Jammu Kashmir uh, Coalition for Civil Society. It has a website. It's re recently brought out a really brilliant report on the internet siege. It should be available online. And I think it's something that people need to read and understand of what is being done to people. Apart from thousands of people being killed, people being blinded by pellets, and now put under this siege, which is absolutely inhuman. And then one last question. What are you currently reading? Oh, my goodness. I, I just finished reading. Uh, I mean, 
for two days after that, I could hardly see because the type was so small and it's like 2,000 pa- uh, page biography of Hitler by Ian Kershaw. But yeah, that was, that's what I was currently reading. I just finished it like a couple of days ago. Then started reading a, quite a beautiful book by the Chinese writer Yu Hua. Mm. I think it's called China in 10 Words. It's really lovely. Well, thank you so much, Arundhati. <laughs> yes, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is Arundhati Roy reading The Pandemic is a Portal. What is this thing that has happened to us? It's a virus, yes. In and of itself, it holds no moral grief. But it's definitely more than a virus. Some believe it's God's way of bringing us to our senses. Others, that it's a Chinese conspiracy to take over the world. Whatever it is, coronavirus has made the mighty needle and brought the world to a halt like nothing else could. Our minds are still racing back and forth, longing for a return to normality, trying to stitch our future to our past and refusing to acknowledge the rupture. But the rupture exists. And in the midst of this terrible despair, it offers us a chance to rethink the doomsday machine we have built for ourselves. Nothing could be worse than a return to normality. Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It's a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our data banks and dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. That was Arundhati Roy on What Have We Done to Democracy? She spoke from her home in New Delhi in early September. She was interviewed by Nick Estes. Arundhati Roy of India is a world-renowned writer and global justice activist. She's the author of many books, including Azadi. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such progressive voices as Naomi Klein, David Suzuki, Tariq Ali, Noam Chomsky, Kianga Yamata-Taylor, and Stephen Bezruchka. We have more than 20 programs featuring Arundhati Roy, as well as a special series on Kashmir. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Arundhati Roy on What Have We Done to Democracy, and for our special book offer, Noam Chomsky, Requiem for the American Dream, just call us at 
1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. And in solidarity with you, our listeners, we're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to Haymarket Books. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with sitar maestro Vilayat Khan performing Raga Shri. alternativeradio.org alternativeradio.org we too are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, mp3s or cds of our programs so we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there Hello, Hal do you read me Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What are you talking about, Hal? I've got my dial locked on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary, Alberta. <laughs> 